I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 2020 was many things, but it was most especially the year when conspiracy theories finally broke out of the shadows and went mainstream. Think of what it means when the President of the United States, no less, repeatedly claims the entire electoral system in the world's most famous democracy has been corrupted, either directly or through his lawyers. The President claimed his landslide victory had been stolen from him through a deep state conspiracy involving Democrats, Republicans, big tech, big money and even a long-dead Venezuelan socialist leader all of it enabling him to raise vast sums of money from indignant and outraged supporters, while the substance of his claims was thrown out of every court to which it was presented. The rise of social media and the relative decline of traditional media have given conspiracy theories a reach and uplift never previously imagined. And it is not a cost-free development. So here's a podcast examining two hugely prevalent conspiracy theories brought together by my friends and colleagues Anthony Lowenstein and Olivia Rosenman. In episode two, we'll look at the industrial strength mischief generated around the scientific reality of a warming planet. But we'll start with a set of conspiracy theories that have almost no institutional support, but which persist anyway. As we contemplate the rollout of COVID vaccines, Olivia and Tony have been exploring the power and persistence of the anti-vaxxer movement. Riley was starting to get sick when he was around three weeks old and it was pretty minor. It was really just a very, very small cough, a bit of a runny nose, but he was very, very tired, which I found strange. So um, it was about midnight one night, I called out a locum doctor to our house. This is Catherine Hughes. Her son Riley was born on February 13th, 2015. When the locum doctor arrived. Riley was perfectly asleep in his little swing as, as, as I spoke to the doctor. And so the doctor really wasn't concerned. And I think perhaps thought I was an overtired, overanxious, worried mother. The doctor left and the family, Catherine, her husband Greg, and their three-year-old daughter Olivia, all went to bed. Riley just kept sleeping and sleeping and I woke up the next morning realising that I hadn't even had to be woken to feed him. Tried to feed him and he just wasn't interested. So that's when I realised pretty quickly, okay, we we need to take him somewhere. So I I just don't feel like this is right at all. So we took him to the local children's hospital that morning. Catherine was reassured when the doctors there weren't too worried either. And the doctors there were pretty casual about it. They said, look, we'll just keep him overnight. They just wanted to make sure Riley was feeding again before they sent him home. And that's the problem with whooping cough because they appear really normal in between the bouts of coughing. It's only when you see the baby cough 
What you're hearing is a recording of Riley coughing. Um, yeah, it was day five in hospital. He was in an induced coma and that's when we were told that there was no hope left and that he would pass away. Riley Hughes was 32 days old when he passed away. Whooping cough is a highly contagious infectious disease. For older kids and adults, whooping cough will make you pretty sick. But for babies, it can be deadly. About one in every 200 babies under six months old who gets whooping cough will die. But whooping cough is preventable with a vaccine. I've always been really supportive of vaccination in that I was raised by a scientist. So I was raised to, I guess, believe in science and believe what doctors tell you. So I was never passionate about it. It's not something I stood up and, you know, would speak about, but um, certainly vaccinated. Just three weeks old when he contracted the disease, Riley was too young to get vaccinated. The first vaccination for whooping cough is given at six weeks of age. The protection of younger babies relies on community vaccination rates and on a whooping cough vaccine that is now offered to all pregnant women in Australia for free. Getting vaccinated during pregnancy reduces the chance of a newborn contracting whooping cough by around 90%. Babies under six weeks of age are too young to be vaccinated against whooping cough. By getting vaccinated when pregnant, you pass on antibodies to your baby, protecting them in the first few months of life. Vaccination during pregnancy is safe and recommended for all pregnant women in Australia. Protecting your baby when they're too That's young That's Catherine's to voice you just heard on a public service advertisement for the vaccination initiative. After Riley's death, Catherine set up an organisation that advocates for immunisation. Catherine wasn't offered the whooping cough vaccine when she was pregnant with Riley. But in the days after Riley's death, the Western Australian government started offering the vaccine to all pregnant women. And soon after, the federal government added it to the National Immunisation Program. Um, I learnt later on that the suburb that we lived in had some of our state's lowest vaccination rates. At the time, the Hughes family lived in Claremont. So quite an affluent suburb in the western suburbs of, of Perth. But unfortunately, yeah, the vaccination rates are not particularly high in Claremont. Australia has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. By the age of five, about 95% of children are fully vaccinated. Uh, of course, there's periods where kids need to be caught up and where they're not on time, but generally we're doing quite well. That's Julie Leesk. I'm a professor in the University of Sydney's um, Susan Wakel School of Nursing and Midwifery and I'm also affiliated with the National Centre for Immunisation Research and my expertise is in behavioural insights in vaccination. Despite the fact Australia on average has high rates of childhood vaccination, there are pockets of vaccine resistance. Back in 2015, when Riley contracted whooping cough, Vaccination rates in Claremont were as low as 85%. Claremont is a wealthy inner-city suburb. The median weekly income is around $2,000, and 45% of residents are tertiary educated, more than double the national average. And surprisingly, suburbs with demographics like Claremont's are often places where vaccination rates are low. When Riley died, Catherine's grief was compounded by knowing that Riley could have been protected if more people around him were vaccinated. 
So the evening after Riley passed away, I put up a Facebook message on my Facebook profile and and set it to public, just letting people know that Riley had passed away and encouraging people to vaccinate or almost begging people to vaccinate. And I sort of passed out that night, um, probably in shock. When she woke up the next morning. I had just received a huge flurry of messages. There was a a big range of stuff. We were told that we were murderers, that we killed Riley ourselves. Um, We were told that it was fake, that Riley never existed and that he was a doll. We were accused of being actors paid by pharmaceutical companies. Um, We were compared to Nazis, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. And it would often happen in waves. So someone would post in one of their anti-vaccine groups, hey, you know, look at these guys promoting vaccination. And then everyone would jump on our post or our Facebook page and send us messages and comments. Catherine had unwittingly become embroiled in a network of anti-vax groups and pages on Facebook. Not long after, this network was the subject of an academic study. This study really provided, I think, the first large-scale comprehensive summary or or mapping, if you like, of uh, what the anti-vaccination movement looked like at that point in time. That's Tim Graham, a researcher at the Digital Media Research Centre at the Queensland University of Technology and co-author of the study, along with his colleague, Naomi Smith. And what we wanted to understand is, who is writing this stuff? Who's pushing it? What's driving it? What can we learn from a really large-scale data analysis about the topics that are driving anti-vaccination. They analysed almost 300,000 text comments from six popular anti-vax Facebook pages over three years, between 2013 and 2016. They weren't overly surprised to discover that the majority of activity was from women. But there was one finding they weren't expecting. When we did a topic analysis of what people were commenting about across these pages, What we found was that so many of the topics were about conspiracy theories, not about vaccination necessarily, but about, you know, all sorts of other conspiracy theories that included, you know, Bill Gates having created the Zika virus, um, Flat Earth Society was in there as well, um, things like that. So people who liked anti-vaccination pages also liked conspiracy pages as well. And this sort of self-reinforcing ecosystem that was amplified in part by algorithms that recommended content to people and and tried to get them to engage with it, it really came out in our study. As well as the affluent inner city suburbs of Australia's major cities, there are several areas where people tend to live more alternative lifestyles that also have low vaccination rates. Places like Mullumbimby, Byron Bay and the Sunshine Coast hinterland. I mean, on many policy issues, the people who are opposed to vaccines I'm talking, you know, people that that live in Mullumbimby, for example, in New South Wales, they would be polar opposite to, in terms of other policy issues like abortion, immigration, and think gun control. But when it comes to their belief, well, their distrust of mainstream media, their belief that there is some kind of uh, conspiracy, one world order that's covering up, maybe it's Big Pharma, maybe it's Bill Gates, covering up the truth about, about some issue, that's where they, they align really strongly with these conspiracy groups. It's well documented that conspiracy theories thrive in times of uncertainty and upheaval. And 2020 has served up plenty of both. 
So Tim Graham has been keeping an eye on those anti-vax pages to see how they're thinking about COVID, the public health response and the vaccine. Well, I, I was not overly surprised when I learned that there was this unholy marriage that had emerged, you know, in the last six months or 12 months between QAnon and, and the anti-vaccination movement. QAnon is a group of conspiracy theorists that have been active online since 2017. It started in the US, but has now gone worldwide. Their core belief is that there is a global child sex trafficking ring being run by Satan-worshipping pedophiles who will do whatever it takes to keep the trafficking business going. QAnon supporters are big fans of Trump. This year, QAnon has made it off the fringes of the internet and into the mainstream. That's largely thanks to COVID, but also due to support from President Trump. According to Pew Research, the number of American adults who had heard about QAnon rose from 23% in February 2020 to 47% by September. Several candidates that ran in the 2020 US election openly engaged with QAnon ideas. Two of those candidates won their races. They'll be sitting in Congress in 2021. And as QAnon's popularity has grown, the group has been quick to take on a range of new conspiracy theories about the pandemic. COVID has brought together a myriad of conspiracy theories in Australia and around the world. Most often, these theories cast doubt on the existence of the virus. Otherwise, they downplay the severity of illness it causes. And if you believe COVID isn't real, or you think it's just not that serious, then you likely oppose masks, lockdowns, social distancing and the COVID vaccine. For some, opposing these measures equates to resisting government-mandated tyranny. Take this man. Public service announcement, folks. The pandemic's over. What you're hearing is a man addressing shoppers at the checkout of a Target store in the US. He's wearing a red T-shirt with the words, fuck your mask, and emblazoned with a big middle finger. The masks don't work. We're going to have to keep them on until they tell us to. Are y'all waiting for the vaccine? They're now saying, without a vaccine, you can't take off your mask. This is a joke, ladies and gentlemen. Right, sir? It's, take off your mask, folks, or else they're never coming off. This is the United States, not the United Nations, okay? We have to recognize tyranny when we see it. This is not going to stop with masks. This is just the beginning. Dr. There's also footage of him making the same announcement in a Whole Foods store. The COVID lockdowns are the biggest human rights violation since slavery. But don't take my word for it. That's a masked security guard asks Masks him to leave. Work. And as he's walking out, another man who's clutching several United shopping States, bags confronts Nations. this guy. I lost my wife to this disease. Thank you for... No, you didn't, sir. Yes, I did. No, yes, you I didn't. Did. She was either intubated or had pre-existing conditions, sir. Yes. Right? And this complicated... No, it didn't, sir. No, it didn't. 15 more years. Sorry. No, sir. No, sir. I'm sorry for your loss, sir. I'm not here. I went once to something that you're calling fake. I didn't say fake. I never said fake. You're an asshole. We're all losing liberties to this, sir. Opposition to measures taken to prevent the spread of COVID blends seamlessly with anti-vaxxer conspiracy theories. One of the world's most prominent anti-vax activists is Robert Kennedy, the nephew of assassinated US President John F. Kennedy. Here he is speaking in Berlin in September, in front of tens of thousands of people who opposed government action on COVID. But I look at this crowd, and I see the opposite 
of Nazism. I see people who love democracy, people who want open government, people who want leaders that are not gonna lie to them, people who are not leaders who will not make up arbitrary rules and regulations to orchestrate obedience of the population. Governments love pandemics. They love pandemics for the same reason they love war, because it gives them the ability to impose controls on the population that the population would otherwise never accept. These sentiments are echoed in Australia. This is from an anti-lockdown protest in Melbourne in September, courtesy of Ruptly. I've just come here for myself and the tyranny that's going on, absolutely atrocious. Um, I'm down here to fight for my freedom. Um, let people know that not everybody's falling for the bullshit that's going through the media and that our government are telling us. Yeah, the taking away of our civil liberties, slowly, bit by bit. And people don't notice it if it happens bit by bit. It's not just going to happen like bang, all of a sudden we're communist China, but slowly disappearing. Calling them, calling everybody conspiracy theorists is very dangerous. I don't think that's correct. Um, and this is, why that, this is why people are angry, uh, first and foremost, because they're not being heard. We also heard similar ideas when we went to visit one of Australia's most active anti-vax groups. There is a whole uh, monolith that's been built up over this virus that we don't even know exists. This group is active online and in real life. They drive a bus around the country to spread their messaging and recruit people into their fold. Julie Leesk has been following them since the 1990s and she says their tactics are particularly manipulative because they thrive on fear and grief. So if there's a parent, for example, who's suffered a tragic event like the loss of a baby through sudden infant death syndrome, and they question whether the vaccine might have caused it, which it wouldn't have, this group will go to them. They'll try and envelop these parents into their networks. Doing my PhD on this in the late 90s, I looked at a lot of these stories. I shed a lot of these tears for these families who'd been through terrible situations and, and terrible events in their lives. Just because a vaccine is given before something like that happens doesn't mean the vaccine caused it. And those, those claims are looked into quite carefully. Anthony, you've also been following this group for a while. You get their emails and we've talked a lot about them. What is it that interests you so much? I've always been fascinated in how the anti-vax movement recruits supporters to its cause and this group is one of the most active and vocal online. And so that's why I knew they were coming to Sydney and suggested we go and see what they're all about. Right. And it wasn't a completely straightforward process. Not at all. I had to first register my interest in attending and then wait for a text and email the night before telling me where I could meet them the following day. So we both jumped in the car on a sunny spring afternoon and went to Centennial Park in Sydney. But when we got to the place that they were supposed to be, they weren't there. So we called the number and they told us they'd been moved along by the police and they were now in Vaucluse. Which is an inner Sydney suburb with a particularly high level of wealth. And a low level of childhood vaccination. I didn't know that at the time, so I didn't ask them if that factored into their new location choice. But it turns out they weren't entirely welcome there either. Yeah, what are you doing here? What's We're the just purpose? talking to our friends. What is the purpose of do being I'd here? I'd rather talk to you off the road. Appalling. Americanism is infecting Australia. Yeah, I think you should be ashamed of yourself. Okay, thank you. 
We met three women who were associated with this organisation and we had a little chat with them about what they were doing and what they believed. They were quick to tell us they weren't against vaccinations. So we were accused of being anti-vaxxers, which isn't actually the case. We're pro-informed choice. But it didn't take long for the conversation to enter the territory of conspiracy theory. They question whether the diseases the kids are being vaccinated for even exist. Where are, all the, where are all these diseases that everyone is talking about? But then they said that vaccines are also causing disease because they contain live viruses. And there are a lot of live viruses being injected into our children and they're the ones that you are seeing predominantly being spread. And when it got to COVID, we got deep into more wacky theories. But funnily enough, mostly they were in line with what Tim Graham had observed in the online world of anti-vax. There are some people who have made a fortune and they are among the world's richest people. Bill Gates' um, fortune has increased by three times since COVID started. Bill Gates, who's all of a sudden the world expert on viruses when he's not even a doctor. Um, the World Health Organization, China is making money hand over fist out of this. There are so many individuals and countries who are profiting from what we're going through right now. 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Another area with persistently low vaccination rates is the Upper Blue Mountains in New South Wales. The suburbs of Katoomba and Lura have recorded some of the lowest vaccination rates in the state. After we went to speak to the anti-vax group on the bus, a registered nurse and midwife from the Blue Mountains tracked you down, right, Anthony? because the anti-vax group had filmed us while we were talking to them and quickly posted it online. Yeah, her name is Sarah Elliott, and she sent me a message on Facebook asking why we were interviewing this anti-vaxxer group and explained that she knew they intentionally misled vulnerable parents. So I spoke to her about how she sees people responding to vaccines in her work. It can look like a range of things. Um, I mean, when people think of an anti-vaxxer, they often have a very alternative view, like a, a hippie or some kind of alternative type of person. It's not always the case. There's often uh, people, even professional people, as well as the average mum and dad, that can be vaccine hesitant. They may have read something on the internet that um, has misled them or placed a few ideas in their head that has made them quite concerned. They may have a family member who may or may not have had a genuine um, adverse event to a vaccine and that naturally will make them concerned. And then you have the ones that, uh, for whatever reason, they're absolutely completely against vaccines. It's against their idea of a healthy lifestyle. They believe that it's poison. They believe that having the disease is a better uh, way to gain immunity instead. Sarah used the words vaccine hesitant to describe a group of people that are actually of greater concern to public health than those who outright oppose vaccines. The vaccine hesitant are people who are undecided about vaccinating their children. According to Julie Leask, there's many more of them than anti-vaxxers. 
So we've been able to estimate in Australia that about 12% of parents have a lot of questions and concerns about vaccination and about 2% are opposed to vaccination. The vaccine hesitant can be convinced by good factual information. So the work we've done around addressing vaccine hesitancy is in supporting health professionals. Probably the most influential thing with vaccine acceptance for people who are uh, a lot of have a lot of concerns, the healthcare professional. They have a lot of influence on whether people end up vaccinating, even though they're very hesitant. So a recommendation from a health professional, whether it be a GP, a nurse, a midwife, a, an Aboriginal health worker, Torres Strait Islander health worker, um, even a, a, a naturopath, for example. If that person trusts that health worker and they're recommending vaccination and it's there and available and easy to have, then you can overcome quite a lot of hesitancy with that. Lisk has been involved in a range of initiatives to support health workers to have these conversations. She also helped establish public resources, like the Sharing Knowledge About Immunisation website, which is full of useful information about the childhood immunisation schedule. It just so happens that our reporting on this story has coincided with the first year of my daughter's life. And so I've been personally interested in some of the questions about vaccines. I was actually quite anxious to get my daughter vaccinated. I got all the required vaccines plus two extra recommended vaccines and I made sure I had doctor's appointments to get them at the earliest point I could. Honestly, I was inspired by fear of the diseases that the childhood schedule protects against. When we spoke to Catherine about the tragic story of her son Riley, I was completely shaken. Whooping cough was definitely something that I was terrified of my baby getting. I have two young children and getting them vaccinated was never in doubt for my partner and I. But in hindsight, I did very little research about the vaccines that were recommended by the government and I think that's because I trusted the science and doctors telling me. Yeah, me too. In fact, after we started making this podcast, I actually started to feel a bit guilty that I hadn't done more research on the risks before I got her vaccinated. So I spent a bunch of time on the Sharing Knowledge About Immunisation website Julie mentioned. And I was surprised to learn about a couple of potential side effects that I had no idea about. None of them cause any long-term damage, but I think it would have been better to know beforehand in case any of them eventuated. Even so, I'm still convinced vaccinating her was the right thing to do and I'll definitely be keeping her up to date with the schedule. But I also realised something more important. I shouldn't feel bad about not researching the vaccines beforehand because I think that trust in science and medicine that you mentioned, Anthony, is actually a really important part of what makes our society work. In fact, we place our trust in all kinds of people every day, knowing that there are systems and institutions that regulate and monitor them. But there are other things that can influence people's decision to vaccinate. One is compelling them to. Sarah, the nurse from the Blue Mountains, was surprised to see some of her colleagues responding negatively to a government requirement for aged care workers to get the flu vaccine this year as a result of the pandemic. But there were people, um, aged care workers, who were actually up in arms about it. They were resistant to the idea of getting the flu shot. They felt it was imposing the flu shot on them. Um, They couldn't see the benefit of having the flu shot. Uh, some of them cited the, the usual rubbish. The flu shot will give you the flu, which it doesn't. It's, it's 
um, not a live vaccine. And yeah, it was a bit surprising that there was this reaction. When it comes to misinformation regarding vaccines, there's probably no greater example of it than the study that linked vaccines and autism, which has been retracted, withdrawn and proven to be false. But nonetheless, the idea persists in most anti-vax communities. I'm Brian Deere and I'm the author of The Doctor Who Fooled the World. My book tells the story, essentially, of what many medical scientists now regard to have been the most damaging scientific fraud in a hundred years. He's talking, of course, about the 1998 study that falsely linked autism to the combined vaccine that protects against measles, mumps and rubella, also known as the MMR vaccine. The fraudulent study was carried out by then-British doctor Andrew Wakefield. What I was able to do was to show that, uh, in fact, nothing was as it appeared. Firstly, two years before the paper was published, at the press conference where Wakefield appeared to all the world to be an independent researcher, bringing forward important new information. In fact, he'd been hired by a solicitor, by a lawyer, trying to launch a class action lawsuit over the MMR vaccine. The next thing Brian Deere discovered was that the 12 children in Wakefield's study, and there were only 12 children, were actually referrals from an anti-vaccine group who were trying to bring a class action lawsuit against the drug companies that manufactured the MMR vaccine. That was then followed by the discovery that Wakefield had in fact taken out his own patent on a single measles vaccine, even nine months before he made this apparently conscious-driven call for the MMR vaccine to be suspended and for parents to uh, turn to single vaccines. Deere also uncovered the fact that the data itself had been misrepresented. It turns out that at least three of the nine children who were reported to have autism in fact did not. So how did this fraud fly under the radar? I think that people were just completely blinded to the idea that uh, data published in a biomedical journal like The Lancet could be false. The establishment simply couldn't accept that anyone would do such a thing. That the, 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 the data would be manipulated. And then the, um, the media jumped onto the story, but simply recognising that here was an important story if uh, there was this um, uh, cluster of children at, uh, attending this one hospital. The impact of the flawed study was immediate. Vaccination rates fell in the UK and US as many parents believed the autism claims. It took more than 12 years for UK immunisation rates to recover. In that time, there were more than 12,000 cases of measles, hundreds of hospitalizations, and at least three fatalities. Rates of immunization in Europe also fell, leading to deadly outbreaks of measles. Wakefield was challenged on CNN in 2011 about the negative impacts of his anti-vax advocacy. What's also growing in number is the number of children who have died because they haven't been vaccinated. Do you feel any sense of responsibility for that? I have never said not vaccinate. I have offered, I have said, suggested that children have the option of single vaccines. And six months after I made that recommendation, the option of single vaccines was drawn by the British government in the UK. They are wholly reprehensible in that act. They took away the option from parents of single vaccines. That's what makes Wakefield such a central character, because he brought us to where we are in terms of uh, a, a very active and dynamic anti-vaccine movement, which... Um, 
various bits of research. There was an important piece in Nature not so long ago suggests he's going to be growing in social media terms probably for another decade. And despite the fact Wakefield was fired from his job and stripped of his licence to practice medicine, despite the fact that no medical journal will ever publish anything he writes ever again, he continues to have a following and, perhaps unsurprisingly, he's more recently been vocal with some ideas about COVID that have no basis in fact. As a bioweapon, it is uh, useless unless you are targeting the economy. If you want to crash the economy rather than kill a lot of people, including your own people, then it's very effective. So Wayford is a key figure today because he's brought the anti-vaccine movement to where it was in a position to move quickly and effectively when the coronavirus issue and particularly discussions of a potential coronavirus vaccine come around. So, so my book tells the story of the campaign that is today mobilised against this pandemic. And what makes Wayford such a pivotal character in the whole coronavirus thing is not because he now pronounces on coronavirus, which he dismisses as woo flu and, and just and, and speaks at meetings without wearing masks in airless rooms with lots of parents, overwhelmingly mothers who don't wear masks either. With the world still firmly in the grip of the worst pandemic in 100 years, our way out of this relies on an effective vaccine and on people being willing to take it. I think it's perfectly reasonable to have concerns about the safety of a new vaccine against a new disease. In the history of medicine, no other vaccine has been developed with such speed. It appears there will be at least two vaccines for COVID widely available in Australia next year. The story is moving quickly. As we're recording this, the UK has just given emergency authorization to Pfizer's vaccine and is set to start administering it any day. Do I have fears? No. Do I have um, a healthy level of uncertainty? Yes. And that's perfectly fine because we're still yet to learn how safe the vaccine is, how effective it is, and how it works. But I also have quite a reasonable amount of confidence, actually. You know, I know our system quite well, and I know how strict and how careful it is. I know the people who are in these regulatory approval authorities and the people who are helping inform vaccine policy in Australia. So I have that strong sense of trust that's developed over many years. Someone else who's confident in the systems and processes that will regulate the new vaccine is Professor Peter Doherty. I'm a professor at the University of Melbourne and um, my field is infection and immunity, but um, due to the fact of uh, being Australian of the year way back, I kind of feel free to comment on all sorts of issues. I've also won a Nobel Prize, which gives you the right to be an authority on anything. Peter is the patron and namesake of the Doherty Institute in Melbourne, where researchers are working on antibody tests, treatments and a vaccine for COVID. Doherty clinicians are treating COVID patients in hospitals and their epidemiologists are working closely with the state and Commonwealth governments on policy. Doherty has a deep understanding of the development of this vaccine and he's not concerned by its speed. The basic point is that everyone should be assured that the vaccines themselves, so far as anyone knows, are safe. 
the technology looks very safe and safer than some previous vaccines that are widely used and that it's going with all possible speed, but also with all possible care. I asked Peter if he'd be lining up for one of the first doses. I'd, I'd use whatever forms of trickery or dishonesty I could to get it early. <laughs> and, you know. The Australian government is insisting that they're not going to force anyone to get the vaccine. This is Paul Kelly, the acting chief medical officer. The government um, at the moment is very clear that we won't be mandating this vaccine. It'll be a voluntary rollout. And Paul has a high degree of confidence that Australians will respond to the government's advice to get vaccinated. Uh, When you look around um, how Australians have responded through the pandemic from the beginning, um, they've really taken on board uh, and in a great level of trust the information they're getting from the medical experts and from the government. Um, And I'm sure that the vaccinations will be taken up uh, in that same way. But the risks of people hesitating to take this vaccine are real. There's a group in the middle, and the group in the middle is the one that ones that we need to really concentrate on. They can be influenced one way or the other, uh, and so it's up to us as the uh, as the authority that's uh, providing the vaccine um, to use everything in our power to make that information available, so that people can make an informed choice about vaccine themselves and not be so influenced by the anti-vaccination group. And the risk of these concerns being amplified by mis- and disinformation and even outright conspiracy are huge. He says they'll be providing factual information in multiple languages and they'll be watching social media and beyond. We are always keeping an eye on what those misinformation campaigns might be and countering those when we need to. Uh, I I love myth-busting. It's one of my favourites. And so uh, we'll be looking to do that um, whenever these things crop up. In the next episode of The Conspiracy Virus, we'll learn how the interests of big business aligned with the beliefs of Cold War ideologues to create one of the biggest misinformation campaigns against modern science. There is never going to be an end to conspiracy theories. The desire to be the holder of secret knowledge that explains away uncertainties in the world is just too deeply human. But what happens when the theories themselves gain industrial or even government backing? It's an idea that intrigues Naomi Oreskes. She's a professor of the history of science at Harvard. I think if you look at the the strength and the breadth of the anti-vaccine movement, it is distressing, but it's still actually pretty small. I mean, in America, something like 90% of Americans do get their children vaccinated. So the anti-vax movement, it's... It's upsetting because there have been a few breakouts and there have been people who have become sick and hurt unnecessarily, but it's still actually relatively small. So now just imagine if the anti-vax situation was the same as climate change, big pharma would be on the side of anti-vaccination. Then you would have a situation that's like climate change where half the American people and, and like most Republicans reject the science. You would have a public health crisis of staggering proportions. And we would not just be looking at 240,000 deaths from COVID-19, we would be looking at tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of deaths from diphtheria and tetanus and whooping cough. So that's the scenario that we're talking about. We are lucky that in the case of anti-vaccination, big business has been on the pro-science side. If big business had been on the anti-science side, this would be a global health crisis of proportions that would make COVID-19 seem modest. 
In episode two of The Conspiracy Virus, the conspiracy theories that have been weaponized by industry and others to stifle effective action on climate change. The Conspiracy Virus is written, produced, and narrated by Anthony Lowenstein and Olivia Rosenman. The host is Hugh Rimmington. Post-production is by Stuart Buckland. This podcast is supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas.